Wessex LNCs supporting you and your practice. So welcome everybody to our another one of our Wessex LMC's um, practice manager update webinars. I'm really pleased today that we've got um, five of us here today. So really pleased you've got um, Ed Rendell and Will Howard, two of our um, medical directors and GPs. Michelle Lombardi, one of our directors of primary care and Dawn Charcraft, our deputy director of primary care. As ever, please, this is an opportunity for us to share with you what you think would be useful, some sort of topical things that are coming up, but also your opportunity to ask us anything you want to about something that's burning in your mind that we may have been talking about or we may not. We will answer everything we possibly can here and now. Things we can't, we'll pop on the um, website when we publish the podcast and we'll put the answers in there and we'll send the links out and it has been a really good opportunity for us to learn lots about what you're up to and, and what's sort of stressing you and what's challenging you and what you'd like help on as much as we can sort of give you information so we very much want these to be two ways I don't think I introduced myself. I'm Louise Greenwood and I'm Director of Education and Training. Um, we are recording this as we always do as a podcast. So just um, just to bear in mind that we are being recorded so you can listen to this afterwards if you wanted to or if you just want to rewind and just check a few bits, you're very, very welcome. Do use the Q&A box for answering, asking any questions. It's easier for us to reply in that. And then when we have lots of flurry of questions, it's easier for me to keep an eye on the Q&A box than the Q&A and chat. So if you could just use a the Q&A box, that would be fantastic. So Will's a little bit tight for time. So we're going to come straight away to looking at the 6% sessional GPs, what BMA guidance. And I think, Michelle, we're going to start with you just to go through a few of the guidelines and then we'll have a discussion and, and bring in sort of Will and Ed and obviously any questions that you have um, do far away. So, Michelle, over to you. Thank you. Thanks, Louise. So I think we're going to start with the 6% pay up lift. And we're understandably getting quite a few queries from practices in relation to this. So just a bit of context and scene setting. So back in April this year, 2.1% was awarded, which practices will already have received. I think that was started to be received in May and backdated and then flowed um, onward from there. And therefore, the 3.9%, the remaining 3.9% um, that has had quite a bit of discussion about how that was going to get out to practices has been agreed and we believe that practices will be receiving that in their November pay run, which will be backdated from April. So that should give you eight months worth of backdated uh, funding. Just to be, just to uh, share the information around the global sum. So um, the global sum has gone from £102.28 to £104.73. And practices uh, need to take into account any pay up lifts they've already awarded to their team as a consequence of the 2.1% when calculating the 6% uplift that has been um, identified. So we are hearing from practices, uh, some practices and also accountants, that the funding associated with um, the 6% won't cover the uh, cost of awarding the full 6%. It's probably worth just mentioning at this stage that on cost can be included within that cut count of 6%. So just to mention, the GP contract is divided into three elements, one of which is the staff expenses, which equates to 44% of your global sum. And I think where practices have chosen to invest in their teams and have a higher staff cost than they're being funded for, the potential increase that's been awarded will potentially not cover the cost to issue maybe the full 6%. I think the difficulty with the additional uplift, this is being paid via the global sum, and it's therefore not tailored to individual staff expenses of each practice. And currently, there is no England-wide GP contractual option that allows an individualised practice uplift. 
And I think it's unfortunate the media coverage that has been um, undertaken in relation to this because actually it's raised staff expectations of receiving a full 6%. There's been no conversation about the on-cost being included in the 6% as well, which obviously then slightly reduces what is being offered. So we wanted to talk really a bit about where practices find themselves in this situation and wanted to bring in Will um, and Ed as around the things that you may want to consider because actually this is really difficult to manage in practices. Thanks, Michelle. You've summarised it beautifully. And I think one of the problems here is this is a complex situation. So remembering this is really unusual. This is the first time that a situation like this has arisen because we had the DDRB making a recommendation of a pay rise. And then the Department of Health and Social Care in July said that that was going to be awarded to all salaried staff we're used to it being applied to salary GPs who will nearly always have this written into their contracts. And then, of course, practices, LMCs went, well, wait a minute, if you're applying it to all staff that are salaried in general practice, how are we going to fund it? And the General Practitioners Committee branch of the BMA went back to NHS England and the Department of saying, how are you going to fund this? You've made the statement, but you now need to give practices the money. And the GPC have had a pretty vigorous negotiation on behalf of general practice, um, uh, general practices uh, to say, you need to give us this money. Given that the contract had given us a 2.1% overall pay uplift, that clearly wasn't going to cover a 6% uplift to all salaried staff. And so this is the first time that that has happened and that the negotiation has given us um, a significant sum of money that is new to general practice that we know doesn't cover the increase in staff costs to all GP practices. And there are some GP practices that will have enough money in this uplift to cover a 6% uplift or equivalent to their staff. And there may be some practices that do not have enough, but they have received a 6% uplift to their part of the global sum that is attributed to staff expenses. So I and much as this pains me to say it, it's better than nothing. So it's a better position that we would have been in. Um, and it is rewarding our staff with a better pay uplift than we perhaps would have been otherwise able to afford. It still sticks in the throat a bit, I think, for a lot of us, because there is a variability from practice to practice. And that is based on the model of employment that that practice may have used. It might depend on individual contracts, the way those individual contracts with your staff are written. And that's often the case when it comes to salary GPs. We always talk about the BMA model contract and that that does pass on that 6% uplift to those um, GPs. But in this situation, considering your staff and making sure any of that extra income that you do get is actually used to uplift the staff income. Now, that may not be by the full 6%, sadly. We'd love it to be. And we absolutely share your frustration that in some practices is not. But um, that 6% should be attributed to staff uplift overall for all of your salaried staff. Um, I can see a question in the chat, Louise. Shall I address yeah, that now? So I the question so. is... Yeah, the question is, um, needs to be a statement to make it clear that on costs are included. The nurses are firm in saying it's not, and they expect the full amount. It's something about raising expectations, isn't it? And managing expectations in comms to your, to your staff, which is not easy. What do you recommend on that, Will? Um, so... so <laughs> 
It is true. And there is, I know, a discussions going on between GPC leadership and the Royal College of Nursing as we speak about how that communication can be shared with our nursing colleagues in a way that genuinely reflects what GPs have received. Um, and so I know this has been a bit of a hot topic on the various list service that Ed and uh, myself and Michelle look at quite a lot. Um, and this is the same kind of conversation that's happening across the whole of England at the moment with regard to that particular statement is, is that the Royal College of Nursing have said to their, their teams of nurses, you guys deserve this pay rise. You should go and ask your employers for that. Now, in hospitals, that's one thing that they're on agenda for change. In general practice, it's a very different thing. And it's very clear that 6% does not mean 6% for every individual salaried employee in a practice. It's a 6% uplift to the overall staff budget allocation that is attributed in our global sum and so that's going to mean different things in different places and the messaging from the nursing uh, from the Royal College of Nurses has been unhelpful but that we are trying to I know the GPC are trying to work with the Royal College of Nurses to improve that messaging over the course of this week and into next. Ed did you want to add anything else uh, about that at all or do you think we've covered most of it I think you've got it I mean I was away last week so I think it's sort of come back coming with fresh eyes and I think it, it's just so frustrating you've got people it's that expectation and the waiting isn't it you've, you've been and the real person you know a member of your staff expecting what they were told ages ago is six percent uplift and the reality of how it's been spread out because it's the only way it can be done and you know if you're in a practice where it will cover it the amount coming in will cover it it's all fine but we know it's only a uplifting a, a proportion of things. It's not covering, you know, leses and not being uplifted with this and stuff. And you, it's a 6% uplift to budgets and you have to do the contractual bit with the salary GPs first. And then what are you left over with? If you're left over with enough to put your staff up 6%, then that's, you know, that's been a, a wonderful process. But, you know, I know um, uh, socially some GPs and explain they've got a, um, not particularly by choice, but it's what they've got. They've ended up with a larger salary GP workforce. And then if you have to put the 6% into there, they're worried there's hardly going to be anything left over. So I think it's a real frustration for, um, you know, the individuals who have been expecting this certain amount. But I think that's the only way it can be explained. It's, it's a 6% uplift to the budget, which is attributed to this. And it doesn't always cover a 6% uplift to all staff. But, the, the you know, you have to um, respect the salaried um uh, con you know, if, if there's well anyone in the in the um, perhaps who's got a contract which uh, links them explicitly to the uplift. Yeah. Do you want to just clarify that? We had a question come in. Salary GPs and retainers <coughs> do need to be passed on the full amount. I take it. Surgery pays ENI and pension on top of that. Can we just clarify that? Is it any different for salaried GPs as far as on costs go? I think we were looking at this the other day weren't we and i think i think i'd just like to go back over the ddrb recommendations because actually if you read all the information in the bma statement doesn't differentiate between members of staff in that statement and nhse in their statement was quite clear it's six percent and that the on costs are included within the six percent so therefore that doesn't and they've not differentiated the staff so in my mind that is really quite clear that it's all it's that's all staff I think we just want to go back and just really read the, the detail in the DDRB recommendation to be really clear on that. And we can put that with um, this recording. Okay, I mean, one sad comment 
Total chaos mm. makes me want to quit. We absolutely understand where you're coming from. If it makes you feel any better, everybody on this call is in agreement with you. Please don't quit. We need you to do your job and do your job brilliantly as you do. Um, if you actually want some personal support, let us know. But we know how you feel. It's the, it, these are sort of the straws, aren't they, that breaks the camel's back. You just think, not again. We're in chaos again. It's um, We're absolutely with you on that. Um, other things that have come in, this does make a nonsense when NHSPS can increase services and facilities costs of 92%. Michelle, you're our premises expert. What do you yeah. think? What can I say? <laughs> what what can I say? NHSPS, well. Yes, yeah. indeed. Um, so what would the LMC consider to be a fair increase to those not contractually obliged to have 6% plus on costs? So that would be the 6% including costs. I so I think, I think it, it depends what situation you're in. So I think if you're in a situation not like my friend with lots of salary, so if 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 it all comes in and it covers all this, I think what Will was making earlier, you need your, you would be expected to pass that on to staff. It, it is an increase in the budget. We expect you to get to that position where you've you've honoured the contracts of the salary GPs and you've lifted up to six percent, including on costs for all your staff. And I think if the money comes in like that and you establish you can do that. I think that's what you do. And then that's not a, a terrible position to be in. I think the problem we're finding is um, there'll be a number of practices on the call who are on the loser pile of this, if that makes sense, winners and losers. And it won't, the money that actually comes through will not satisfy that. And that's the harder thing. That's going to be a, a matter for um, or, uh, uh, practices to look at themselves and say, well, we have to contractually pass this money onto the salary GPs. What is left? So we, what are we choosing to do? Much like you know, last year or the year before, you know, as I think as Will comes back to this, is a real. I don't know. It's just it's a bit like my child having um, been promised six Smarties and getting five, and it, it's really annoyed at the gap of you know. But there are there are more, you know. It is a lift. It is better than last year, but it's just completely human nature to say, well, how frustrating! I've waited ages for this, and I'm not getting what I was promised, and it, it's completely. Uh, and it's people are, you know, it, it, I've had a number of conversations with practice managers about this and it's, it's people are waiting and hanging on for this and expecting, expecting 6%. Um, so it's real frustration. Massive frustrating. Um, just a clarification about PCN staff. Um, PCN not employed by the practice aren't going to get anything query. This seems unfair when earlier in the year we tried to match PCN and practice staff pay rises. Practice staff now potentially get another pay increase where possible, but nothing for PCN staff. So what this is the R staff, isn't it? Um, I don't know. Michelle, do you have any comment on that? So, so technically they potentially will be under agenda for change and there was a separate um, award for those members of staff, which was 5%. And I think there were some bonus payments included within that. So we are aware that if you look at the PCN DES, there were, um, there's a funding table and it identifies that for April to June, there is an amount of funding for the reimbursement for those roles. And then there's a table from July to March, which then identifies the 5% uplift. So the reimbursement's been increased. So, um, Technically, they are getting an increase, but actually it looks like PCNs are going to have to fund the first three months of the year. So AWS staff will have agenda for change increases that equate to 5%, but the funding that's coming into PCNs for the reimbursement 
potentially won't start until what hasn't started until July. So there's a three month gap there, which PCMs potentially going to have to find. Okay. I think that's correct, isn't it, Will? Yeah, agreed. Um, clarification again, the 6% uplift for salaried GPs is from November query. Is it backdated to April? What, what do we know what, what's going on with that? Backdated to April. Okay, and something else on that. If a GP has recently left, are we duty bound to back pay them from April to September for the uplift? I've seen, I don't think we have an answer on this. I've seen, uh, I've seen this come up on other conversations. I think it's really tricky. I think I'm aware, I mean, I think our line probably would be to um, ask for HR advice on this, but I do think um, I've I've heard of a practice who did ask for HR advice and they said that they had left and it's nothing to, to go back and do. But I don't think we have a position on that unless someone wants to change mine. So I think, unfortunately, that would be a HR question, especially a HR question. But I do understand that um, one practice asked that and they were told, oh, well, they've left. You don't go back and give them a pay rise when they left. Their terms and conditions are at this point in time. But that's not our advice because we aren't HR specialists. So unfortunately, it's one for practices to to look at themselves unless they wants to disagree. I, I would agree, Ed. I think the difficulty practices will have is they will have ended that employment mm. on their payroll. So they're then going to have to reinstate that individual. But I think you're absolutely right. I think they're going to need to seek HR advice. But it's the logistics of them having to do that particular, if they then identify they've got to pay. So I don't know if it's one we could take up with the BMA, I don't know if... Uh, we could perhaps ask that question in the BNA because it's going I to think break up another. There's another comment coming in. Just say HR advice to me last week was that yes, we do have to pay it. So right. it sounds like it's a combination of HR advice and it'd be useful for us. So we could we could ask the BMA though, couldn't we? I think we'll take that as an action for us as well. Um, carrying on on this topic, the, just a comment: the losers will be the patients when the partners have had enough and hand back the contract, and then we're closed. So, um, yeah, but absolutely um, here where you where you are on that. Going back to the R staff, PCN staff, PCN staff not always on agenda for change. Hours aren't. We didn't give them the five percent as it wasn't fair on the practice staff. We didn't have enough R's funding to pay that increase anyway. Will, do you have a comment about where you are and where would you be? I, I think it's I think it's a really difficult one. And this is a great example of where one size absolutely in general practice never fits all. And that there are PCNs who are um, different types of employment models that will have different types of employment contracts. Some may, may reflect a gender for change, some may not. Some may have small numbers of staff that have subcontracts to a different organization. So, you know, an example of that may be where you've got two physios. One is employed through uh, as a first contact practitioner through a subcontract and one is employed direct with the practice. Well, they may end up on different pay scales. And this is the complexity of PCNs versus individual practices, let, that the reality is that individual practices are complex enough when it comes to in, income. We talked about the difference between salary GPs with different contracts to other salaried staff. And then you add in PCNs where you may have some staff on agenda for change and some not. And the reality therefore is that the decision sits with the partners um, and in this case, if it's a PCN with the PCN board to make a decision about how much money you have gained through this rise in your global sum and therefore how much you can afford to pay all of your staff as fairly as possible. 
Um, and, and that would be the way I individually may look at that as a GP working in my practice, but it very much is how I would look at it as an individual GP. And I would hope to then open that discussion with all of my colleagues, all of my partners and my practice manager to work out then, therefore, the way forward for us as an individual organization. But the problem is, is my organization, my practice may be very different to one down the road because our employment model is different. And we may have far more salary GPs. Therefore, more of this uplift has been used to pay for those salary GPs. Therefore, that leaves less headroom in that uplift to the 44% staff entitlement. Um, to help uplift our staff by quite as much. Whereas if it was a, a much lower salary GP model and more partners, then you've got more spare staff costs in that global sum uplift that you might be able to uplift more. And there's the problem. Neighboring practices, ones not even in the same building, if you happen to be in a practice that isn't the same, but will have a different model and a different level of change in income that is freed up by this uplift to the global sum. And that is what makes it chaotic. Going back to the comment that someone led, said earlier, that is what makes it difficult to understand because mm -hmm. you can talk to your, your, um, your friend practice manager down the road and you will have completely different answers to this. And therefore, you have to take it on an individual practice by practice basis, um, um, which go goes back to the, the question that someone else, what is a fair description of the uplift that you might give? It's not that it's fair, it's what can be afforded by the uplift that you've been given by NHS England. That will direct entirely. You can almost make a spreadsheet. You can imagine the spreadsheet that you might have developed. This is what's left after we have given the salary GPs their uplift, and therefore that will buy us X percent for the rest of our salaried staff. It might be six, it might be more, it might be less. I hope it's more, but it's likely in a lot of people's cases to be less. And that's very frustrating. We really do share that. But as Louise earlier said, please don't leave because of it. This is another example of one of those things that you've just got to get your head round and then we'll take the next step forward to the next thing that's thrown at us. But we are good at dealing with it. Yeah. And kind of uniting as a practice in it. So talking to your partners, not, not just holding the decision yourself and also just having um, consistent communication to all, your, um, all the staff and getting the communication um, open and transparent, which none of that is easy. Of course it isn't. Um, do we have to uplift any staff who started after April 23? We've said no, but I've had a member of staff query this. I think that it's interesting. Do we have to? Is it recommended? What? what where do we sit on that? Um, Michelle, what do you think? Again, I think it's potentially going to be a HR question. It's yeah. going to look at what's in the contract, what's in your staff contract around pay uplifts. I suspect it won't um, have anything around this eventuality. As we've said, this is the first time we've ever had this. Um, I, I think it's probably going to be a HR question. Again, it might be something we could ask the BMA um, and see if we can get some guidance on the practices. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds great. I, I would only say, I would only add, Louise, that it may well be that the contract that the um, member of staff signed is equivalent to all of your other members of staff's contract and um, depending on the HR advice that you receive it may well be that you have to give them the uplift based on the number of months that they have received because they signed a contract based on the previous pay scale and that pay scale has been changed by this decision. Okay thank you that good advice. Um, do we have any idea when we will receive this additional payment? We believe it's going to be November and it'll be the backdated element as well. Okay. 
So um, yeah, look out for it. Um, it. It should be coming soon. Okay, thank you. That was really useful. We thought that might be quite a meaty discussion, and it turned out to be so. So that's absolutely fantastic. Well, I do know you're not not a pop up. If you're able to stay for the next bit, that would be great. But I completely know that you've got another meeting to go to. So I think we're going to go on um, about um, the BMA guidance for sessional GPs. Um, I don't know whether you want to start off with this one, um, Ed or Will. Whether you want to um, lead off with what's going on there. I'll, I'll make a start if I may. And I know mm-hmm. Ed will, will chip in at, at certain points if I've missed anything, especially. Um, so as we all know, general practice uh, as a profession has um, partners and it has salary GPs of various types um, doing all sorts of work to support the delivery of care to patients. That's not a new model that's been around for a long time. Um, but there's always been something of a tension between partners and salaried GPs on occasion when it comes to workload and pay. And that can be something that, that, that leads to um, discussions. And this is one of those discussions that's being had at a national level where um, the BMA has delivered guidance, the BMA representing all GPs has delivered guidance for sessional GPs um, to consider how they might ensure that they are not overwhelmed by the uh, work that is thrown towards them. Um, And they've therefore introduced um, a new guidance and support for managing the workload and overtime for salary GPs. If you look at last week's newsletter, there's a section in there with links to um, the the guidance and support that salary GPs are being asked to look at. And it includes advice such as logging your overtime um, and making sure you look at how much work you're doing and whether you feel it's over and above your contract. Now, at face value, lots of GP um, partners and practice managers said, well, what are we meant to do as GPs and as running our businesses? We've now got GPs who aren't going to help support, deliver this this overwhelming workload that's being thrown at us because they're going to start thinking about having overtime sheets and charging us money for the work that they do over and above. Now, I think most GP practices will understand that they we all rely on our sessional GPs to support the care we give to all of our patients. We are a team of GPs. We are all in the same profession. And the the reason that this piece of work has been done by the BMA is to try and help all GPs understand their role in delivering the care to the patients. Now in GP partnership, we're responsible for ticking the box to deliver our GMS contracts and all the enhanced services. Sessional GPs, have to deliver to their own contract, which is the contract of employment that they have with the practice, with their employer. And those are two very different job roles, you might say. And when the BMA talks about safe for working for partners and GP practices, this is the same kind of conversation that they're opening with their sessional GPs to make sure that sessional GPs also are part of the conversation about safe working and making sure they're not overwhelmed by the work that is again thrown at them and i think the the important part of this message that we'd like to convey to you um, is that this is actually a conversation that we should all be having as organizations with ourselves to consider how we manage the workload it's not well if they're not going to do it we'll have to do it it's if there's work there that is beyond all of our capacity, then we as an organization need to come up with a way of which we can manage that work up to safe limits and then work with LMCs and commissioners about what happens when we've reached those safe limits. 
Um, and uh, that is the way in which we should be sh standing shoulder to shoulder with our sessional colleagues, if your partners and practice managers, and um, trying to help work out how we can keep all of our work safe so that we can look after patients safely. That's the bottom line is safe working, because actually, if you are any GP, it doesn't matter if you're a sessional GP or a partner, if you're seeing your 70th patient of the day, there is now evidence that that is significantly less safe than if it's your first patient of the day. And so we've got to try and keep our patients safe. Um, it is very easy to talk about this type of thing in a forum such as this. However, we know how difficult and complex those conversations can be on the ground. Um, uh, uh, but I would say we should be doing doing that, doing it, having those conversations as teams together rather than in confrontational against one another. Ed. Yeah, um, thanks, Will. Really helpful. I uh, completely agree. Uh, I think it'd be very unusual if the BMA didn't have guidance in this area, and it's sort of um, almost uh, surprised it's, it's new, given you know the the junior doctor strikes and um, other sides of things we've seen with the consultants around rate cards and what about overtime. So you know they represent all their members. It, it's some guidance that's needed, but I, I completely agree with Will uh, with the caveat: it's easier said than done. But um, you know, looking at this as a whole. Uh, as a whole practice. And I think I'd extend that to non-clinical part of the practice as well. So practice managers, um, everyone in the whole team, essentially. So how do you, this is being born about with the pressures we're under and there's some guidance for a specific part of the team saying what to do if you go over that bit. But I think this works better as a whole team approach when you're saying, well, what, what are we as a whole team going to do about this and how are we going to say, um, with Frazzle, it's pointless as well doing it, even if you extend it to all the clinicians. If the practice manager and the, the admin team, everyone's frazzled, it still doesn't work for the, the team or for the patient. So it needs a whole um, team approach to safe working. Um, fortunately, there's a, a really couple of helpful examples. So I'll just put in the chat as long as everyone can see it, um, the podcast I listened to quite recently from um, Wessex NMC's podcast, and it, it describes to two practices in Hampshire where they've um, they've taken this. And I think it's quite interesting because they haven't gone full max on BMA safer working. They just said, look, we wanted to look at the whole thing. And this was one of the elements and just putting some limits into what happened. And I really would encourage listening to that if you if you haven't already. I think over 300, uh, 320 people have listened to that already. So, um, yeah, I think this guidance is, is um, well, it, it, it is what it is. It's out there that you'd expect guidance in this in this space. I think for me, I'd agree with Will, it's an opportunity to think wider than the just the tension between um, uh, what a salary GP do, will do or not do and think wider in terms of what will the whole team do and what are we going to do on in terms of limits and approaching, um, you know, everything that was in our contract is within our power to say we are we are doing this amount of, uh, of safe contacts in a day. Thanks, Ed. I mean, there are a couple of comments that have come in. Some sessional GPs are becoming more and more limited in what they will and will not do. It's just puts more pressure on the rest of the team and it's getting really difficult to manage. I think all we can do is say yes. Um, three of us on this call have been <coughs> managers and we can we can remember how tricky it can be. Um, it's obviously not everybody, but some people can be quite tricky. Um, and I think taking, Go on taking that and the, the next point, which perhaps coming to is, um, it's probably worth listening to. Um, we've got a new uh, version of the, the newsletter, which is a verbalization. So uh, our joint chief execs aren't here this week. They're on leave. But uh, Andy Perbrick and Laura Edwards um, talked through the, the newsletter. And I think Andy Andy's partner and explained, you know, 
you know, with his partner hat on, this is a really difficult bit of um, information to hear and see. It sort of uh, echoes the sort of uh, the thoughts that are reflected there. But yeah, I think it, he goes into a bit more detail about whether with actually a wider LMC hat on. How does he, uh, how does he view and approach that? But yeah, we completely get the, um, you know, how this feels as a partner, um, um, mm. sort of with a everything constraining apart from you. And just to verbalise that for the sake of those who are listening on the podcast, the question came in that the BMA are not in support of partners. They cater solely towards a salaried GP who are now starting to be paid more than a partner with many more benefits. If we all worked that way, we will be in an even worse position than we are already. So that was just what Ed was commenting on. Um, and if, you know, if you need any proof for anybody about all the work you are doing, and um, we've just produced an incredible practice manager calendar, which is not, I have done none of this. It looks absolutely fantastic. I would have loved it when I was a practice manager. And it's all the national deadlines that you need to make. So we're going to be publishing that in our newsletter next week. And if you need to show anybody, well, this is the sort of thing I do all the time. Just, just show them. And I think that people will be amazed uh, about all the, all the plates that you are spinning and um, that you know you're doing, but possibly not everybody else sees that. Just going back to a previous our previous conversation about the six percent, and we there was a comment about was this not included? When's it going to be paid? We thought it was going to be November. So we've had a comment. Didn't they include this month's increase in the October pay run? I'm not sure we're going to know, and I'm not sure whether that's ICB specific. Does anybody know the answer? Michelle, are you aware of that? I'm not aware of it. No, well, no. our understanding was it was all coming in yeah. starting from November. Originally, there was a conversation it would be in October, but I think it was then further delayed. Yeah. But let's check. Okay, yeah, we'll check on that. And I suspect it will, yeah, who knows? Um, it could be ICB-specific. Um, another comment, um, if, if all GPs went salaried, the NHS stroke government would not know what to tip them. Mm. Yes. Interesting. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Absolutely true. You're absolutely yeah. nail on the head there. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why it back, it gets backtracked. I think you've seen you've probably seen with um certain politicians have advocated this and said, Oh, we're gonna do this and then actually when a few more conversations and realised the cost of buying everyone out of property and making everyone salaried and uh, the the goodwill that uh, uh comes from, um, from salary partners and uh, sorry, from partners to to go above and beyond for their business sake, um, uh, in addition to everyone else doing goodwill. Um, yeah, I think it, it's uh, not an easy option, which is why it's not really on the cards at this point. Absolutely. So that was really helpful. Thank you, everybody. I think we're going to move on to something different now. So I think, um, Ed, you're going to lead us a little bit, I think, to start with in a GPAS. And thank you very much, Will. Really appreciate your contribution. Great to see you. We'll see you again very soon. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, so a quick discussion on GPAS. Um, why shall again? We just, shall we just remind everybody who doesn't know mm. what it stands for and what it is? Yep, general practice alert state. So uh, this is a reporting system that um, has been brought in by Devon LMC and they're pushing it across to other LMCs nationally. Um, so it's weekly, anonymous, um, and it, it gives um, a sort of OPAL system, a, a one to four system of saying how the practices overall and a few other bits and questions. And particularly what we like is some comments that come back from the practices uh, that we can look to do. So there's a real gap. Um, and I think it, it is topical, really, because um, uh, the RCGP uh, chair, I think this week, said that, you know, this is needed for general practice, uh, an equal system with hospitals, because there's so much data in hospitals and so much they can, they can tell you, not just this, but what A&E wait times and two-week wait times and everything like that. So you get all this data and there's a whole industry looking at that side of things. Whereas 
in general practice historically we've had anecdotes um uh, and a few few examples to sort of say what's going on so we're we're finding it really helpful i think um the main purpose i think is this that longer term strategic conversation so i think the biggest example is last winter where we we had really good data from practices showing the the complete shift in demand from group a strep over those four weeks and then it enables us to have those conversations with icbs um and just have that honest conversation and say everyone is struggling gps are paid by quaff and wif to do stuff which isn't so much of a priority what would you like would you like them to prioritize that and then say sorry we haven't got enough space and everything goes to a and e and it puts more pressure on the hospitals or would you like them to to know that you'll have their back if if that's um if they're going to see all these extra patients to do that so i think that's the the most helpful point about and i suppose the other point is why we're talking about now so now i think is the time to to push on this i think we we're fairly established now i think two of our um three areas we we published this for a sort of up at 56 and 57% and consistently over 50% so i think we're really getting some good data another one of the areas is at uh, 39% and a bit less. And I think the interesting thing we see, the, the, the areas that perhaps aren't able to report, everyone, it makes it look like everything's okay. So I think there's one area which is only managing 29% and it's, it's the only area that looks like it's Opal 1 and everything's fine. So it is that challenge that if you're not reporting how you are, people may falsely think everything is is fine. Um, I think the other point really is we, we don't know how powerful this is yet. So you know, it's really good. We've got sort of um, nearly 60% established in a couple of areas. But if we had 80%, 90% in all our areas for a whole year, I think this would reap even more benefit. So I think the the sort of um, how powerful is it? So what? We, we don't know. We have no idea. So if, if we have practices reporting on this consistently for a long period of time, I think we would then see the effect, A, to stop, um, to, to actually have something to say, can we help general practice? And B, to stop this sort of um, uh, everyone looking in another space and saying general practice is the solution for our issue. And, and you can say, oh, hang on, we're not, because look at the look at the data. Um, the bit I'd like you to take home from this conversation, if that's okay, is a conversation with your neighbor or your PCN. Um, we've realized, and you probably sat there saying, I've heard about this a lot. We do it every week because that's the, that's the reality. Most practices now do it. It's now established. Um, we think it's actually practices who perhaps don't come on these webinars or don't come to these conversations who are struggling with this. So what I would like everyone to do is to consider having a conversation with a neighboring practice or taking up at a PCM meeting. And if you do this regularly um, and you find a practice is not, explain to them how simple it is and how quickly you can do it. Um, we usually suggest delegating the task to a, a member of staff and giving them that responsibility. And it can be done pretty quickly, um, usually within a, a few minutes, just to get that that information through once a week. Um, and then if you're not doing it, ask practices around you, because the majority are, and then just ask them how how to do it and how to get it through. So yeah, um, a, a sort of plea really to to um, to speak to your neighbours. And I think we'll hopefully see that this is the time of year when it's the most of benefit and, and be most helpful to, uh, to use. Thanks. Thanks, so that's really helpful. I think Michelle, you wanted to come in. We know it's an anonymous reporting, but you've seen a few comments, I think, that you wanted to mention. Yeah, the comments are the most useful element to see how it's feeling in general practice. And there's been, and there's always a number that are quite difficult and quite sad to read. And I just wanted to remind everybody that obviously, as Ed said, this is anonymous. So 
there's comments that come in that are, you know, I'd really like to chat to the practice, but we don't know who they're from. So if you really are struggling, if you need any help, please, you can either contact the office or there's a GPAS support email that you can use to contact us. So we, and if there's any support we can offer, we absolutely will. But it, it's really tricky because we don't know who the comments have come from um, and we'd really like to work with the practice and support them. It's just Thanks. a highlight that. Thanks, Michelle, that's important. So uh, following on neatly from that, a question has come in. Is there a reason why you don't publish the name of the practices, Ed? Yes. Um, essentially, as I described earlier, so this it has a pros and cons of it being a national system. So this is coming from Devon MCs. They, they, they developed it, but we can only suggest them changes and they have to agree it because it's a national dashboard that's coming out. So it's an anonymized thing. And I think... I think in a way, deliberately, really, we, we sort of, it, it's a it's a different thing to some, some areas have a, a daily reporting system that goes through straight to their ICB. Um, so BSWI work, they've got something called Shrewd, which would encourage using as well. And that you can once a day, just literally open up an app on your phone and go one, two, three, four, and put it through. And that will name you and go to the ICB. And that's different. That's sort of saying, look, we're normally a one and there's some crisis has happened and you know, we're asking the ICB for help. This is a more strategic tool, looking nationally, anonymously, weekly, a bit more qualitatively. So it's a different thing. This is this is this is helping us more in a strategic conversation. Those bigger conversations about um, what support general practice needs for a winter, or or to change payment mechanisms to to affect the population. So it's it's a different um, concept, and we can only uh, influence it by asking Devon. LMCs to consider a suggestion. Um, just on that note, it is it is getting into more of a national dashboard now. Um, it, it's um, it's published weekly with it, but it's still in a in a um, a smaller state. But it has now got six of the seven LMCs in the in the southwest. It's got London, Kent. Um, there's one centre of the country probably around Nottinghamshire, some up in Scotland. So it, it's colouring in more of the of the map, and and I think that will be an additional help. Uh, which will help the 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 really bigger conversations nationally uh, when we've got a national dashboard and we're we're sort of saying that this is the state of general practice across the country. Brilliant, thank you. That's been really useful. Anybody want any help with completing GPAS or any more information? Just just give us a shout, and we'll be more than happy to help. A few more items that we'd just like to share with you, just to let you know the delivery plan for recovering access to primary care, the support offer for primary care networks is still there. Um, just a reminder, really. Um, so the primary care network support offer is part of the general practice improvement program and is highlighted in the delivery plan. Um, it's providing facilitated support across six months to help PCNs address access challenges using evidence-based improvement tools and techniques. And the benefits of participating, including helping practices and the PCN to achieve QOF and IAF targets and indicators specific to demand capacity and workforce. There's a webinar on the 9th of November if any of you are interested, and there's more information about the PCN support offer on the Futures platform. So we'll just put a couple of those links in um, with our, uh, when we publish the podcast so you can have a look at those if you are interested. Just a quick reminder for that. Um, Michelle, I think we're coming on a little bit about HIV and STIs now. Yes, thanks, Louise. So this is information that was published in the Primary Care Bulletin, I think, last week. And it's really just a highlight to practices. There are some, there is now some guidance on how to share information about HIV and sexually transmitted infections. The guidance includes, um, I think it, it, it covers different, um, organizations. So it's dedicated to sexual health services and other settings and also GP practices. 
and it gives guidance around what to do if a patient doesn't want their information to be shared with others, how to um, manage situations where patients' partners or recent sexual contacts may have had a risk of serious harm from an un undiagnosed infection. There's also a really useful section around um, uh, information governance professionals, which may be of interest and maybe of interest to the DPOs and the data protection officers. It's really just to highlight this and guidance around, uh, around this and is available for practices. Lovely. Thank you very much, Michelle. Um, I think well, we're coming to you now. So, so if, yes, an e referral service, I think. Thanks, Louise. Yes, this is just another um, item from the primary care bulletin we thought worthy of a mention. Um, for anyone in your practice using the e-referral service, they will need to change the um, the URL or the browser address that they use to log into that. Um, we can put that um, in the chat bar if you want it, but I thought also we'd probably put it alongside the podcast recording. Um, the system itself is not changing. I think that's really worth note. It's not that the actual ERS service is changing. It is simply the URL that's changing. So that's the um, website address that you'll need to use to actually access and get into the system. And following on from that, there was one other little mention I was going to make today, just as a reminder for probably your nursing practice team. It's the Green Book um, and the Green Book Chapter 2, which is all about consent, um, has been updated um, just recently last week. Um, and the update information is all about reconsent, written consent and also the use of unlicensed and off-label vaccines. Um, so probably worth um, mentioning that. Uh, to go and have a look at chapter two of the Green Book. Thanks, Louise. Thanks, Dawn. So is there any guidance on the recent email from Public Health about shingles and the GP's extractions? First of all, do we know about the recent email? And do we know about the GP's extractions? Dawn, you're brilliant at this kind of stuff. Do you have any idea about this? Um, or oh, not on mute, that's okay. Um, <laughs> no, to be honest, I'm not sure. There has been some recent um, technical guidance, I think it was, but it wasn't that that was anything new. It was just that because of all the complexity of all the changes with the programme, um, NHS England decided to, I say decided, thought it'd be useful to put some, together some what they call technical guidance. That's on our website. So if it's about that, it is there if you'd like to have a look at it. If it's anything else, please do email us in and I'll certainly have a look and take it up and, and make sure we can find out what we need to for you. Yeah, Michelle, have you got any more information on that? No, no I just okay. wonder if um, Ben could give us a bit more detail. We might, we can yeah, that'd that be helpful. Yeah, that'd be helpful. Thank you, Ben. Um, just a comment most open ERS via EMIS, so hopefully that'll update. So that should be a sort of an easier, easier win for the EMIS practices. Um, thank you for those. That's really useful. Um, so I think we've come to the end of our questions. It's been a, there's quite a long one today. Often we sort of rattle off and we're finished by 20 past. And I was just going to remind everybody that our next um, practice manager webinar is going to be on Wednesday, the 8th of November. We've got Ian Jones and Adore Shuko coming from Register with a GP Surgery Service. Um, and there's an NHS digital service that gives all GP practices in England a standardised way of taking registrations online, makes it simpler and more accessible for patients to register with a GP and easier for practice to manage registrations is free. Um, so we're just going to, um, you know, some of you have already signed up to that, some of you haven't. So we just thought to take the opportunity um, for a couple of people to come along and talk about that. And also, we'll take the opportunity to tell you a little bit more about our new website, an event booking service, which we hope will be going live on the 14th of November. So we'll tell you a little bit more about that um, next time we meet.
So unless anybody else has got anything else they want to mention, I think it's been a really useful discussion. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for your time. You know, it's very, very precious. Um, I hope this has been useful and we'll see you again very next time. So thanks very much. Bye-bye. Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice.